Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, you have recorded it, you have kept it for us, that we might know you and know how to serve you. Help us, Father, to respond to your word with faith and with obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there are people that I've met over my years uh, involved in church who have faced and who do face uh, religious prejudice. Uh, they've often been on the receiving of end of this kind of prejudice because of their faith in Jesus. Some of them uh, have faced uh, opposition from the state, the government under which they've lived, uh, and some of them have been threatened with violence for their faith in Jesus. Uh, others have faced um, uh, exclusion or discouragement from family or friends. Uh, I've had the privilege of knowing many Christians who have uh, suffered in this way because of their faith. You see, one of the, uh, perhaps the uh, deadly aspect of religion is religious prejudice. And we see religious prejudice in John chapter 4. Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman. Um, John's little aside in verse 9 is really quite understated when he says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's a little bit like saying Israel and their Arab neighbours don't always get along. It's a bit of an understatement. Let's just get our heads around a bit of the history, though, uh, between this standoff between the Jews, of whom Jesus was one, and these guys called the Samaritans. In Jesus' day, the region of Samaria was in the northern part of what had been the United uh, Israel in the good old days under kings Saul, David, and Solomon. Um, under King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, there was a split in the year 922 BC, so about a thousand years before Jesus. There were ten tribes in the north who broke away. They were known as Israel and two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah. And Jerusalem, the capital, was there. Uh, however, a couple of hundred years later, by about 722 BC, the Assyrians came in from the north, um, took a lot of the, the leading people of Israel away and really started to populate the region uh, with their own people. And so over the centuries, uh, up until the time of Jesus, uh, this kind of mixed group of people were no longer considered real Jews. Uh, they'd developed a pretty separate but not entirely new religion um, and uh, they'd become very ethnically mixed because of all the Assyrians who'd come in to the north and intermingled with them. And so it was not uncommon for Jews uh, living in Galilee, and if they were down south and had to return back to the north, I think we've got a map uh, on the next slide, it was not uncommon if you were going from Jerusalem back up to Galilee to actually, in order to avoid the Samaritans, to go around, to take the long way around. It was not uncommon for people to do that. Now, I do enjoy going on holidays down to the south coast. But I've got to let you in on a little prejudice that I have. I have a prejudice against the little town of Bury. Yeah, I know some of you love it. Some of you love it with its bad overpriced coffee, its annoying craft shops, and that wretched donut van that causes my children, without fail, to say, can we stop and get a donut? No. I mean, how many years have we driven through Berry and they still ask, like there's a chance. I have hated every slow-moving minute through that awful little town. My apologies if you come from Berry or if you love it. 
it is my own personal prejudice, and I'm sticking to it. The people of Berry are my very own Samaritans. But now, we have a bypass. Yes! And so Jesus goes into enemy territory, but as he does so, he makes friends. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now these religious prejudices aren't just ancient things. They are modern as well. I remember speaking with a, uh, an older man uh, who had been, who had come back to church late in life and he had been really turned off Christianity when he was a younger man because the minister at his local church had told him that if he was going to be a faithful member of his denomination, he was required to cross the road if he was walking down the street and down the street he saw somebody collecting for the salvation army he was to cross the street to the other side so as to avoid that person religious people are sometimes prone to silly and vindictive prejudices now in this opening discussion between jesus and the samaritan woman we have uh, a, an example of one of these common misunderstandings that happen in John's Gospel. Jesus is talking about one thing and the woman is talking about another and they're kind of missing each other. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Do you see it? She's talking about water. He's talking about something else. This woman doesn't get what he is talking about. And Jesus is talking about living water that God gives. Like in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, where it says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That is, God's people have turned their back on God and sought their own water, their own life. Jesus is talking about what the Old Testament looked forward to with Zechariah chapter 14. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east to the Dead Sea, half of it to the west to the Mediterranean Sea. In summer and in winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name will, and his name the only name. Jesus is speaking about the knowledge of God coming to all people. But he and this woman are just, they're on different levels. They're not connecting. And so Jesus makes the issue a little bit more personal. 
Verse 16, he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, now Jesus starts to get some traction with this woman. Jesus is not only crossing a difficult religious barrier with this woman and a difficult ethnic barrier, he is also crossing a moral barrier. Now, we don't know the details of this woman's life, of the five marriages that have happened. We can only guess, though, at the grief and the pain and the sin wrapped up in her story. But that past, along with the fact that the relationship she was now in was not really a legal one, meant that even among the people who were outsiders, the Samaritans, even among them, this woman is very clearly another outsider. She's an outsider among the outsiders. Here she is outside of town, collecting water at the well by herself, an activity that generally, and even to this day, uh, women in some parts of the world do together. It's a social gathering point. It's clear that this is how others viewed her. She was an outsider. This is another aspect of religious prejudice. It creates moral outsiders. It says that some people are or are made to feel too far gone for God. But she's taken the bait with this conversation. She can see that Jesus is at least a prophet and such are his abilities to see into her past. And here she hits upon what differentiates the Jews from the Samaritans. The Jews worship in Jerusalem. She, a Samaritan, they worship on another mountain, Mount Gerizim, although the Jews had tried to knock down their temple a few times before. So she runs off to go and grab as many Samaritans who will come out and listen to this man. Come and see this guy. He told me everything I ever did. So it's not surprising that even this outsider among the Samaritans is able to draw a crowd out to come and meet Jesus. And in the end, at the end of the chapter, quite a number of these Samaritans come to put their faith in Jesus. They believe that he is the Saviour, as Zechariah had prophesied. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. It's starting to happen amongst these Samaritans. They saw Jesus not simply as a prophet, but as the saviour. Now, I think at the heart of prejudice, whether it's prejudice held by religious people or by non-religious people, at the heart of prejudice really is sin. 
very often the sin of pride. Pride loves to find a nice high vantage point from which to look down at other people and be able to enjoy how I think of myself as a little bit better than the people that I'm just looking down upon. I can think about my morality, uh, my goodness, and look down in judgment and superiority on others. A friend of mine has spent the last few years of his working life working as a prison chaplain. And he has told me stories of people. He never mentions any names. He's never allowed to mention names. But people who have committed infamous crimes, people you probably would have heard of, who have come to prison and have become Christians in prison. Uh, these are people who, in some cases, have committed terrible crimes. People that we, the law-abiding public, would pretty quickly look down upon uh, from our high moral vantage point. Uh, in fact, ironically, uh, these are people who the, the non-law-abiding prison population will look down on. These are guys who often have to be put in solitary confinement, in protection, because of what they have done and how well-known their crimes are. But my friend tells me of the complete and genuine transformation that Jesus can bring and has brought to the lives of some of these men. They have found acceptance from Jesus when everybody else in the world, it seems, despised them. They found forgiveness from Jesus when everybody else in the world, it seems, would have said, no, that person is beyond forgiveness. And notice the way that Jesus is able to talk meaningfully to this woman who is an outsider in so many ways. He's able to be gentle and accepting of her. And yet he doesn't water down the truth. He really is quite blunt with her. Verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. Salvation is from the Jews. He's quite clear. He doesn't water down the truth because he has met this person in need. He says, to, he says to her, Well, yes, you have had five husbands and the man you now have, it's, that's not right either. He doesn't water down the truth and yet he is able to engage at a real deep level with this woman. And in the end of the story, he's able to reach a whole group of people religious outsiders who put their faith in him. And he does so without compromising the truth. Now, there is a curious little exchange in the middle of this story, which is a bit hard to understand, but I think it, it actually contains the key to what this whole episode is about and means for us. It's between Jesus and his disciples, verse 27. This is while the woman's gone off to get the other Samaritans. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, 
so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. You see, in this somewhat curious little exchange, Jesus is talking about mission. Again, the disciples don't get it. He's talking about one thing, they're talking about another. The woman at the well was talking about drinking water. Jesus is talking about living water, spiritual water. The disciples are talking about food. Jesus is talking about his mission, why he has come. But Jesus does talk about physical, real, agricultural harvesting. But in fact, what he's talking about is a spiritual matter. He's talking about his mission, the spiritual harvest of people coming to put their faith in Jesus and being saved on the day of judgment. Now, to be a farmer, to do agricultural harvesting, actually requires faith. You put the seed in the ground, uh, often it's dry ground, and you do so with the hope that rain will come and turn the seed into a plant. Uh, harvest time in Israel is around, it's just about to start coming up in April, May. And perhaps when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, it was December. And he's saying, well, you guys have that saying, it's four months until the harvest time, till the crop is fully grown. And imagine Jesus standing there with his disciples as they look out towards the town. And in the distance, they see this Samaritan woman, probably half running, with a whole bunch of other Samaritans coming back. And he says to them in verse 35, open your eyes, look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And Jesus says the sower, the guy who puts the seed in the soil, and the reaper, the one who comes and cuts down the fully grown plant, are rejoicing together. Normally, the sower plants months before, and then the reaper comes along, cuts down the plants and sells it. But here, it's, it's immediate. Jesus has just spoken to this Samaritan woman. And then all of a sudden, here comes this whole crop of Samaritans coming to Jesus, coming to put their faith in him, just as Zechariah had prophesied. The Lord will be king over the whole earth, not just the Jews, but all people. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. Jesus' mission sends him into enemy territory. And it's effective. It's immediate in its effectiveness. Here are all these Samaritans putting their faith in him. And I think this passage pushes us to consider our involvement in God's mission. So Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. The question for us is, is that your food? See, we may be tempted, other than to be a part of God's mission, we may actually find ourselves tempted at times to kind of withdraw into a religious cocoon. Maybe a religious cocoon of, of prejudice, where we withdraw from people who are not like us, withdraw from people who do not share our faith, or maybe have another faith, or maybe have things in their past and background which make us think, well, they're maybe a bit too far from God. You see, withdrawal from others 
is the way of religious prejudice. But that is not what we're called to. We are called to be like Jesus and to love and serve those who are around us, even those that we might consider outsiders. And to do so with a commitment to the truth, not to water down truth. Not to say, well, look, I accept you and affirm you, but let's not worry about the truth. No, like Jesus, to love and serve people and yet be committed to the truth about who he is and the authority that he has. It was Jesus' food to do the will of his Father that took him into enemy territory. And that also brought about a great harvest amongst these people, these outsiders, the Samaritans. Question for us is, for you and me, is that your food? Is that my food? To do the will of the Father and take our part in his mission. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he came into the world full of grace and truth. That he spoke the truth in a way that was uncompromising, and yet that he went to those who, for so many, were considered outsiders, unacceptable. And Father, we thank you that his grace reaches out to us. Help us, Father, to likewise take the truth of who Jesus is into our world. Help us not to retreat from those around us, but help us to make you known. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.